Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor of medicine at Stanford University. Dr. Bhattacharya holds an MD and PhD in economics and has been writing peer-reviewed articles on infectious disease epidemiology, economics, and policy for 20 years. His work during the COVID-19 epidemic includes the first zero-prevalence study measuring the prevalence of antibodies and the Great Barrington Declaration, which urges a change in COVID-19 infection control policies away from lockdowns and in favor of focused protection of the vulnerable. Welcome to our show. I would like to know, just to jump into this with you, can you first tell me about you know, who you are and how are you qualified to discuss this crazy situation we're in? Uh, sure. So I'm a, uh, uh, my name is Jay Bhattacharya. I'm a professor of medicine here at Stanford University in the United States. I uh, have been studying, I have an MD and a, MD and a PhD in, in economics of all things, um, but my career has been focused on uh, a, a, this, a, a health policy and in, in particular infectious disease, health policy and epidemiology. I've written, you know, a, a whole bunch of papers on that, going back to the HIV days, H1N1, HIVN1, a, a whole series of, of, uh, of papers related to policy around infectious disease. Uh, in the during the H1N1 days, it was 2009. Um, I noticed uh, that there was a there was a peculiarly phenomenon. So what I note with with the early days of the H1N1, it was actually very similar to the COVID days that in in terms of the, the, the media and the scientific community latching on to very, very high fatality estimates. Um, now, part of that is just uncertainty. The, the, how do you calculate fatality rate? Well, it's, I mean, it sounds simple. You count the number of people who have the disease, uh, that's the denominator, and you count the number of people who die, that's the numerator, right? Uh, that's, that seems like the simplest possible <laughs> kind, of, kind of calculation. The problem is that uh, not everyone who has the disease shows up to the doctor because it turns out that like for respiratory diseases like H1N1 and also for COVID, there's a wide range of clinical presentations uh, ranging from not very, you know, you, you know, don't get rid of your symptoms at all to the, the, the very severe viral pneumonia we've seen on TV all the time. And um, so the, the focus of the media, the focus actually even of, of the, the scientific community in the early days of, of H1N1 were on these, these severe cases. And they would report a case fatality rate. And this was in the published literature of you know, very high numbers for H1N1. It was like 1%, 2%, even up as high as 10%. And everybody panicked. I thought it was going to be just like COVID, that people thought there was going to be the, uh, you know, sort of a, a society shattering event. Um, what happened though is interesting is that in H1N1, uh, they, in 2009, a series of papers started to come out that looked at how many pe people actually have the disease. And how do, you, how do you tell that? Well, you can't look at whether the virus is in you because this is not like uh, HIV or, or varicella or chickenpox where the virus stays in you forever. In fact, your body clears it eventually. If you, if, you know, if you survive. Um, and uh, after you clear it, there's no more evidence of the virus in you. So you have to look for uh, no more evidence, direct evidence of RNA of the virus in you. So you have to look for other kinds of evidence. Uh, so the, the, the kind of evidence that people had latched onto and in, in the, people had looked at in the, in the H1N1 days, and actually this is a pretty common technique, turns out, is to look for antibodies. 
Um, you know, you, you, your body produces antibodies when you're infected and those antibodies last. Uh, now it turns out in COVID they last not maybe two, three, four, five months. We can talk more about immunity later. Um, but, they, but, they, but the point is that even after you've been infected and you clear the virus, you still have the antibodies for at least a short period of time afterwards. Uh, you know, months. So how do you, so the, the, in order to, to count the number of infected people, you should be counting the number of people with antibodies present, not the number of people with the virus present. So that's what led to the hypothesis that maybe, uh, in, in, this is something that I thought about in March, and uh, John Unides also thought this, Aaron Ben David, who, who, who was a colleague of mine, actually a former student of mine that, that worked, with, worked with me on these studies, also thought this. And we thought, okay, well, uh, why don't we look and so we did. So we, we organized a study in Santa Clara County, uh, California, and in Los Angeles County, uh, and uh, to, to look at the prevalence of antibodies in the in these populations. And it turns out to be turned out to be uh, I mean a blockbuster number. So in Santa Clara County, I think it was on the order of forty or fifty times both both in Santa Clara and LA County, forty or fifty times more infections, you know, people with evidence of antibodies than than the number of cases. So in Santa Clara County, I think it was like a thousand people had been identified on April 3rd or 4th to, with the, with uh, COVID uh, as cases, but there were 50,000 people walking or, uh, you know, implied by our study, walking around Santa Clara County with uh, evidence that they'd been infected. Well, that means the disease fatality rate is, the infection fatality rate is much lower than the original estimates. The original estimates, the, the ones you mentioned are things like the World Health Organization saying 3.4% of people who get this, three out of a hundred people get this die. I mean, that's an earth shattering number, right? Um, but it turns out that the, in fact, the infection fatality rate, now there's now uh, almost a hundred such studies from around the world, uh, including Italy and, and uh, Europe, uh, the, the Americas, India, uh, Asia. And it turns out from, from, from these studies, we know that uh, among the people who are under 70, who get this disease, 99.95% of the people survive, live through this. 99.95. People who are over 70, though, it's much worse. 95% survive it. The 5% mortality rate is very high. This is, in some ways, different than the flu. Children are less affected by this than the flu. And more children have died to date in the United States from the flu this year than have died from COVID-19. Um, and that's true, basically, almost everywhere you look. Because children, for thank God, for whatever reason, are not... But, uh, particularly affected by this in, in the same way that adults are, especially older older adults are. For older adults, so this is much more deadly than the flu. 5% mortality is a very, very high number uh, for, for a, a respiratory infectious disease for, for elderly. So you have this very, very sharp age gradient in mortality. In the early days, the, you, you, you mentioned the, the, the uh, focus, on, like the, 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 the panic. Um, I mean, and I think the media certainly played a role in it. I mean, it, it, you could sort of excuse it because the numbers weren't known. And, you know, people that don't study infectious disease for a living, they don't know to say, okay, well, there may, there may be other people walking around who, did, who got the disease but didn't have uh, such a severe presentation they showed up at the doctor. Um, I, I don't think that excuse is available now. We now know what the infection fatality rate is, the, the infection survival rate is. It's, not, it's a disease that requires a response but not the kind of response that we've given it. In the early days, uh, lockdown in Northern Italy from 23 February, the next month in most of Europe, there were various forms of lockdowns from light to heavy to then the 
Swedish experiment. And, you know, we were told that essentially this is going to kill all old people. But we know that even with the 5% mortality rate of people uh, who are, are quite elderly, we're also learning that the numbers aren't being clearly portrayed by the media. This is another thing. Your work, John Yonita's work, was pulled from various parts of the interweb, right? I mean, his video on the Santa Clara study was, I mean, I might as well, I, I could have probably seen a satanic uh, ritual more easily, you know? I mean, it's pretty insane that, you know, um, you've gotten a severe amount of pushback. And then I followed, you know, the, the Santa Clara study. I followed also your Major League Baseball study. And uh, why is it that science is being vetted by what seems to be both politicians and the media? I mean, that's a really good question. I, I think the, the, the response of the scientific community to this epidemic has been both re excellent in some ways and absolutely inexcusable in others. And I think the media has played a role in this. Obviously, politics has as well. Um, I think, um, so let, let's, let's, let's step back up for a second and think about what, uh, what norms science follow, uh, should, should, should follow and what norms public health follows. And then we can talk also about the norms of, of politics as well. I, I know less, much less about that than I do about these other two norms. Um, uh, in science, you absolutely have to have open conversation or you can't have science. You know, whatever ideas, are, you know, you and I may disagree on something um, and we, we talk, talk with each other. We say, okay, well, here's where we disagree and here's an experiment or here's a, 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 a study that we can do that will potentially resolve our disagreement. We collect the data and uh, we look at the data and say, okay, well, uh, now we agree on this part, but we don't agree on this, part, this other part. This, the, the kind of the conversation moves forward. There's a dialectic to science where there's the disagreement leads to a, an experiment or some 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 kind of like mechanism to try to uh, resolve it based on based on uh, you know uh, actual work um, and then and then we then figure out what, where we still agree or where we disagree the, and, the, and the conversation moves forward I mean that's how science works it's how it's supposed to work and as soon as you say you can't have this idea to talk about then science ends right because then the dialectic is undercut from underneath um, so that, that's the that's the dialectic in science. In in public health, there is this need to give a consistent message to the population in a way that they can understand that clearly that clearly expresses both the scientific reality, but also uh, sort of helps that population see what sort of guide action in the population. So in a way, there's a more of a a, a push on a, a, a unanimity in messaging. Um, that that so in, in, it, it you can see the conflict with the the norms of science where you have to have this this open conversation in public health it's not always exactly open it's we've, we've here's what we know now we the community public health community know now right uh, and if there's dissent and there's a dialectic and it's this discussion well it confuses it can confuse the pop population right that's that's the that's the that's the kind of tension in public health messaging i think both norms have been violated in this epidemic. Uh, it, uh, we can let, it, it just take the public health norm of, of clear messaging, right? You, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the, the the poor messaging about risk. It is absolutely terrible. Like what what has happened now is the public health community has said to, uh, in effect, given the impression to the world that everyone is at equal risk from this disease when they are not. 
it's older people that are high risk and younger people that are much less high risk. What harm has that done? It's done enormous harm. So there's been this huge, in the United States and in many other parts of the world, there's been this fear of sending our children to school when in fact it's more risky for them to stay at home than to, than to go to school. We're denying our children a right to education because of our, fe our misperceived fear about the risk that they face from COVID. Um, at the same time, older people, they underestimate their risk. I think they end up taking more risk than probably is wise to do so. Um, I mean, by, by telling people that they're all exactly at the same risk, we've made, uh, given the public a poor set of tools to make good decisions about their lives. And that's the whole goal of public health is to give the public good tools so they can make good decisions, right? Um, I mean, at the same time, the, the, uh, the scientific community has been, I mean, there's, there's some been huge successes. I mean, just, just look at the work on the vaccine and, and, and a lot of the understanding of the disease in such a short time is, is amazing to me. Um, but at, at, at the same time, there's been this very strange support of censorship of ideas, even within the scientific community. I mean, I felt it, and you mentioned uh, uh, John Enidis, his, 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 I mean, he's the most, uh, he's the most brilliant man, uh, you know, working in this area, you, you know, I, there's, I've met a lot of brilliant people, there's, he, I mean, he's, he's amazing, right? He may be wrong, I mean, he's, he's human, but at the same time, do you really want to not hear what he thinks? I mean, it's, it is absolutely nuts. Uh, so you, you have to, you have to like open up uh, uh, the, 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 this, and the, the pushback has been, well, look, if you say these things, People might get confused. It might be dangerous to say these things. You know, the, 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 the infection fatality rate is lower than we originally thought. Well, don't tell the public that. You can't, you can't have that dialectic leak out into the public because they might get confused about it. They, they might stop obeying the, the, the orders that you were giving them. Right? I think there's been that element of this uh, uh, thinking, which is absolutely uh, antithetical to good science. I mean, science, science just can't function in an environment like that. Right. And it's also led to confusion. For instance, <clears throat> they scared the, you know, <clears throat> the heck out of people all over Italy, France, Spain, and the UK, because they had higher numbers than I'm sure anyone imagined initially. But then in the summer, it was like, okay, we're good. Everyone go and take a vacation. And I was thinking, wait, this is not going to end well. We're going to just be doing this rinse and repeat in the fall. Sure enough, that's pretty much what's happened. Instead of saying, as um, I've learned to sort of roll with the information, okay, this is what the case in, in March. We locked you guys up. Sorry about that. But if you want to keep these kinds of freedoms, this is what you need to do. Countries like Italy, much of France and Spain, these are places that have cultures of multi-generational dwellings and governments did not address this. They could have like, instead of throwing money at, this is your vacation bonus, which is what they did in Italy, they could have been working on plans to create, you know, uh, COVID hospitals for one and to help the elderly separate from these multi-generational houses because it put them at risk such that again, you're seeing the fatality rates now. And <clears throat> I'm just wondering, you know, uh, in all of this, where science is, of course, science changes based on information and public health depends on people not getting confused. I have yet to see a leader come out and say, with the exception of maybe New Zealand's leader, but come out and say, okay, this is what we know now. Things have changed, but we're going to move in this direction now. Instead of 
someone said to me on my Facebook page, wait, why are you telling people to do this? Two months ago, you said to do that. And I said, well, I read the information and we have more information now. This is not the black plague. This is not the bubonic plague. And we need to also not have a mental health crisis, right? <laughs> I mean, it, there's a big challenge there for public health to be able to take the information and present it to the masses who, in a way, would prefer that nothing changes, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with you. I think what's happened is uh, we haven't adapted. As I said earlier, we've had a, learned a lot about this disease, an incredible amount in the past, uh, you know, what, some 12 months since we've lived, 10, 11 months since we've living it with it. Um, uh, it's, but we haven't really adapted our policy, right? So we essentially are thinking about the same policies we adopted in March, which, which failed, actually. We, I mean, they, they, it didn't stop this. I, I think, uh, let, me, let me circle back to this, this point about what the, what the goal of policy should be. Right. So on the one hand, I think in the early days of the epidemic, people thought, many people thought, and, this, and governments, I think, around the world acted on this idea that we could eradicate this disease. If it's not particularly widespread, let's treat it like we treated SARS-CoV-1 and uh, 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 isolate the cases, contact trace, get rid uh, and find every single case, quarantine them, and then the disease is done. That worked in New Zealand because there really wasn't that, there weren't that many cases in New Zealand in the early days of the epidemic when they started this policy. In, in, the, in Europe and in the Americas and in much of Asia, uh, especially in, in, in South Asia, that was not possible as a policy. It was zero COVID is an impossible dream. It will never be achieved. Um, well, it's, it, you know, there are four, four other circulating human coronaviruses. It's so widespread that uh, it, in order to eradicate it, it would take uh, basically stopping civilization. I quarantining people for a very long time until you know it's gone. Um, let me tell you that in, in, in human history, we've only eradicated a single human virus, a single human disease, smallpox. And that took decades of effort with a fantastic uh, vaccine. Uh, and you know we, we're still we still worry about outbreaks today to this day because so we we maintain stockpiles of, of of smallpox vaccines for that reason. Um, I mean it's 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 a it's a very difficult thing to eradicate a virus or eradicate a disease. It's it's not it's not something to be undertaken lightly. And even in the case of smallpox, the folks who are uh, successfully did it, they they were serious people. They argued and calculated what the costs would be. So that, you know, because that meant not focusing on other diseases, uh, diverting resources that would have been, could have been used to spend on malaria or tuberculosis or other, other, other things that, that afflict mankind all over, you know, people all over the world, right, uh, in, in high numbers. Um, so that zero COVID dream is impossible. I think that the, the other, the only other endpoint of this disease then is Essentially, what in, 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 the, in the models are called an endemic equilibrium, essentially an equilibrium where the disease is still around, but when a, one additional person gets it, they only infect one other person or fewer. The disease doesn't grow. Well, how do you get that? Well, it turns out that, that is how the, that's the end point of every infectious disease or nearly every infectious disease. It's called, it's called herd immunity, uh, but that's a loaded term. All it means is 
we're at a point where there's enough immune people in the population that when a new person gets the disease, they infect one or fewer people. That's, all, that's literally what it means. Um, and you can get there multiple ways. Um, but the point is that that is the endpoint of this disease. There's no other endpoint available to us. The only question is, how do we minimize the, the human death, misery, and suffering until we get there? The problem with the policy we've adopted is that it, it, uh, it, because it seeks to aim at zero COVID or something close to something like zero COVID, um, it, 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 it has ignored the, the enormous devastating cost of these lockdowns, the, the isolation, uh, the, the suicidality, uh, starvation, uh, lost education for our children, enormous society shattering costs in chasing a dream that is not possible. We saw the news yesterday from Japan about the suicide rates in October outweighing the entire number of COVID deaths in that country from this year. Uh, that speaks volumes to what's going on. Julie, there was in the United States in June of this year, the CDC ran a study and what they found is that one in four young adults, 18 to 24, seriously considered suicide this June. Just think of the pain that's involved in that. Uh, we've we've decided we've basically stolen youth from our from our from our uh, from our children and from our young adults. Yes, and also compacted it with this um, uh, imprisonment. I mean, we can't. <laughs> Someone made a joke early in the spring on my social media page, or maybe theirs, about how at least prisoners are allowed to go out and walk around the yard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's, it's, and uh, we, and we compiled it we, we, on top of that. We, we laid on guilt, which is something that public health and shame, the Gulf public health should never do. We said, look, you're going to kill your grandmother. If you go, go do normal young, th young person things, it is absolutely, uh, I don't, I don't have the right words to describe how I feel about it. It's, it's just irresponsible. Yes, uh, I, I have words that I can't say here because I've, I've been in this um, myself. I've never been a, I've never dealt with depression my entire life. <clears throat> what happened in the spring, I, um, I've had one thing worse in my life that's happened and that was the death of my first child. And I can't even tell you how much this year has weighed on me. Like it's, even if you add economics, that's even an afterthought. And um, not that that too hasn't been a case, but there's so many people, including in like the U.S. and Western countries, who do not know where their next meal is going to come from. And people are not talking about this because it's what CNN and lefty, I hate to say, and I'm a leftist, but leftist publications like The Guardian, The New York Times, uh, Korea, uh, sorry, um, um, La Repubblica in Italy and other leftist papers, they're, they're talking about 12 things you can do with your kids during lockdown, involving things that a vast majority of the population in Italy could not afford because they didn't have any money coming in. You know, there's 130 million, the UN in April estimated that 130 million people around the world additional will be out will be at risk of starvation as a consequence of the economic collapse caused by the lockdowns. 130 million. 
No doubt. Well, people are saying, but it's only economics. And I, I, my, I said, well, first of all, let's, let's be clear. When we're talking about economics, we're not talking about capitalism. We're talking about eating. So people are confusing the word economics for capitalism. Again, I'm a leftist. I have a lot to say about um, <laughs> the harms of capitalism. But let's be clear. The, the only people I saw in our country, like the U.S., speaking out for the working class was most bizarrely to me, the right. It was the left going all pro-lockdown. <laughs> the, the, the folks who I've most closely allied with during this epidemic have been on the left, right? So, to, so yeah, Professor Sunetra Gupta at Oxford is very famously on the left. Uh, uh, there, there are others. Um, I don't think it's, I, I actually, I don't think, at least I hope it's not left, you know, the right, then it's the right-wing government in the UK that's imposed this crazy lockdown. Um, I think, I, th I don't think it's left, right. I, th I think it's deeper than that. There's like this civilizational issue. I mean, it's almost feels like civilizational suicide. And there are people who look at it and say, no, we like the civilization we had. We, it's fun to argue with right and left. Let's, let's go back to that. Um, and there are the people who are sitting in fear and thinking and, and are absolutely blind to the harms of this lockdown, the catastrophic harms on poor people in every single poor country on the face of the earth and rich countries on the face of the earth. Every single poor person on the face of the earth, I think has been damaged by these lockdowns in ways that are, that are uh, just hard to defend. Well, also people who aren't necessarily poor, but who've been made poor quite quickly from this. People who've only survived it barely by scraping by in savings. And I'm thinking of the vast new class of freelancers that's all over the West. You have parts of Italy where freelancers make up over 60% of the working body. And this is the, the same in places like London and New York. Um, freelancers are not going to come out well from this, right? Where other countries have made laws about, even Italy has a law that you can't fire people in this period. And have they extended it beyond January? That is yet to be seen. Well, that's employment contracts. People, even blue-collar workers, will be better off than white-collar freelancers who I, I just uh, got in my inbox before we spoke an email from The Intercept, the enormous amount of layoffs in media, unbelievable. So, uh, well, we, you know, it's poor people that, that, that have hit, uh, like, I'll just, uh, you, we, let me come, come back to something you said earlier, which is really insightful. Um, think about, think about uh, the, the, the designation of people as essential and non-essential. It's, it is amazing. So essentially we said, we, we've said essential workers are, are, look, you go out and bear the burden of the risk of the disease. You go take it. Whether you're, say you're a 63 year old and you have diabetics and you are a store clerk. Well, you go take the risk. No thought has been put to say, look, let's protect those people. We know from the science that those are the people that are high risk from the disease, if they should get it. Shouldn't our policy match that so that we protect them? Uh, you mentioned oh, intergenerational homes. You know that the, 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 the lockdowns have created intergenerational homes. Young people lost their jobs and went, went to go live with their older parents. Oh, we return people from our kids from our universities to go, to, to go essentially expose their, expose their grandparents and older parents um, because, because we close the universities down. Um, the, 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 the policy should match the science and it doesn't. It's this, it's, we think lockdown is the safe idea. It is the least safe public health intervention I have ever seen in my entire life. I, I can't help but agree. I mean, you know, this is 
I, again, I'm coming from the social sciences. So I was really like, okay, we've got to stay in. I was doing this whole, like I was in the US military. So I knew how to prepare for nuclear attacks and how to clean up after you get out of what was called MOP4. I was able to do all of it. But at a certain point, and I was following this, I was reading even older documents about the plagues, you know, the bubonic and the Black Death. And I was thinking, well, that's not what this is. After a few weeks, even the information coming in in ER rooms was very clear that a specific demographic was the one most likely to die. Now, does this mean that, you know, we throw granny and grandpa to the curb? Of course not. But why is it that now with this so-called second wave, which, uh, you know, again, is debatable uh, as the as name, um, why have governments not worked on a better mitigation process? For instance, you you did the Major League Baseball study as well, correct? Yes, and I did. you had information that came out of that that was also very, you know, it was not in the news. Can you tell us about that study and what you were able to show? So in uh, this was conducted in early April, also right around the time, this, a little bit after the Santa Clara study. Um, what we uh, and this was in cooperation with Major League Baseball. We looked at we uh, managed thanks to the 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 amazing resources that Major League Baseball had to give uh, do a nationwide study of the prevalence of this disease in the employee population, not not the players. Actually, it turns out it was it was mainly the the people who run the back office and and the staff. Um, now, they, now the Major League Baseball had shut down, right? So it wasn't they weren't actually interacting with people. They were they were doing Zoom meetings just like just like m much of the rest of the rich world. Um, at, there we found a 0.7 percent prevalence uh, nationwide in early April, which is really low, right? Um, but what's striking was that the Major League Baseball employees, you know, generally generally more well off than than uh, the, the, a typical worker, um, actually had lower prevalence than the disease prevalence in the cities where they lived. This actually has now carried on to net to today. So, for instance, in uh, the, the 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 it is the poor that have that have borne the burden of this disease worldwide. Uh, in Toronto, I saw some numbers in the th the thirty poorest uh, sort of zip codes. I don't know what the equivalent is in Canada, but, but the, essentially like postal, a, codes. postal code areas, right? Um, uh, the 30 poorest postal codes in Toronto had the very highest rates of, of COVID-19 infection and the 30 richest had the very lowest rates. There is a, this is a disease that affects the poor in a, and it's part, it's the lockdowns that have caused this. Right, so the lockdowns have protected the rich at the and 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 asked the poor to bear the burden of this disease. And how how is that happening? Aside from the fact that one of the most odious comments I hate this year, uh, I'm against the death penalty. But in my mind, I imagine these people burning at the stake, the ones who say, "Oh, Jack and I have just saved oodles on eating out." You know, I love those people, right? But they are getting their food from delivery drivers. We've created this false morality, right? We, we essentially, it's like this dual society. One, one class gets up, get, it's protected by living in some little moat, uh, the, the moat, moat protected uh, castle, and, and and all have everything delivered to us, and the other class delivers it, right? That's essentially we created this two tier. It's like a new caste system. 
right? There's the essential class caste, and then there's the non-essential caste. And you know, the rich are the non-essential caste that live in live in this uh, live live in, live protected from the virus. It's um, it's a very strange policy that we've under. And the, 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 I mean, let me talk about a let me let me try to turn the, the conversation a little toward a more positive thing because I think a, an alternate policy is available that would be more humane that would result in less COVID death and non-COVID death. If we just adopted it, and you've hinted at it, uh, I mean, the key thing is let's think about who's vulnerable and protect them, right? So, in uh, worldwide, care homes and nursing homes have been the central place where people have died from this disease. You know, I think the United States says forty to fifty percent have died from from COVID in nursing home settings. Forty to fifty percent of of COVID deaths, right? That's an enormous number of deaths. Um, and so, well, why don't we work to protect them? Now, we've done better than we did before. So, but, but in the early days of the epidemic, we made catastrophic mistakes. I think in Italy, they did this. In New York, they did this. They sent people, in order to keep the hospitals clear of COVID, so clear and open and not overwhelmed, they sent COVID-infected patients back to nursing homes so that they could, uh, with, and nursing homes that had no capacity to, to protect the non-infected from the infected, isolate them at all. And so we infected very large numbers of older people who we know die at high rates from this disease unthinkingly because we thought the only thing that mattered was protecting the hospitals rather than protecting the people um, you know, who are at high risk. Yes, we, we keep hearing that. It's important to not crowd in the ER rooms, the A&E rooms, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying that that's, we shouldn't think about that, but that is not the only goal. And in fact, the main goal should be to protect the people from the infection, not the, not the hospitals. Right. Uh, uh, the the uh, the the uh, another setting that we haven't thought given too much thought to, but we, we ought to. Uh, and I've said this is is older workers who are who are vulnerable. Well, that goes to the heart of the pol political problem, right? Um, early on in the states, when they were debating in the Senate, you know what kind of recompense they would give people. <laughs> the, the, the holy cow moment of my year was seeing Nancy Pelosi not wanting to go there and Trump ironically went there and it said, okay, all the hospital bills will be paid for this per period of time. Um, but it is a political issue who's going to be kept at home safe. And that comes down to I'm sure we'll see more and more studies come out in the coming years, but I'm quite certain the governments that have more socialized medicine, like Canada, is faring better than the states in large part because of. I, mean, I think it's more than just a, a policy about about hospitals, right? Hospital bills. It's also a policy about who who we protect at work, right? So we've des designated certain classes of work as essential and certain classes of work as non-essential. But what we should be doing is we should say these certain, certain people who we know to be at high risk, whatever your work is, should be protected, right? So for instance, um, we should use, dis like in the United States, there's, and I think much of the Western world, there's these disability accommodation laws that require employers to provide accommodations, reasonable accommodations for workers who face disability, so they can do their work, but not, uh, but but still cope with the disability. Uh, um, we could use these laws, right? So, for instance, uh, the the sixty three year old uh, clerk, store clerk with diabetes, that person's at high risk. She's at high risk. They should get 
an, an accommodation so that they uh, maybe they can help in the back back room or where they're not but they're isolated or they can they can do more management work or they can do you know other other kinds of work related to, to what they do without losing their job but not have to face the crowds that might infect them right or um, uh, take take teachers right so the the, 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 the older teacher with uh, hypertension and, 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 and diabetes and, and uh, uh, other conditions that expose them to high risk if they get if they were to get covid well they, they can they, they can work with all younger teachers on curriculum they they can teach from zoom while the younger teachers teach uh, the lowest teachers teach uh, you know in, in, in the classroom um, they, there's all kinds of creative things you could do if you just think that you should do it. Instead, we thought, oh, we'll slow the spread with these lockdowns and that'll protect people. But we see it has not protected people. You know, millions, of, of, I think it's a million and a half people have died in the United States. It's uh, 270,000, I think, on this date in December. Um, uh, so it's, it's uh, the, the policy essentially is a failure of imagination. We thought, oh, well, only, the only thing we can do is slow the spread and that'll protect the vulnerable rather than just directly trying to protect the vulnerable. Multi-generational homes is another good, good example. You know, we, should, we have now testing resources available that, that, that where you could just offer to uh, people living in multi-generational homes these, these, these uh, um, rapid antigen tests that you can take, uh, you know, it actually, it, it, there's a requirement that you often do have to do them in a lab, but why have that requirement? Let, give these tests, they're, they're relatively inexpensive, versions of these tests to, to millions of people. And then when the teenager comes home from a, uh, from, from a, you know, from, from doing teenager things, you can have the teenager test. If they're, if they're positive, then grandma can, uh, we can offer grandma a, 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 a temporary, you know, like a hotel or temporary place to live while the teenager gets better. Well, right. exactly. This is uh, the failure of testing has been really phenomenal for me to witness in Europe, but also the, as you say, the lack of uh, creativity, imagination. Why, where was Italy and Spain in making hostels and hotels available for elderly? Or, you know, saying instead of paying for vacations, the governments could have said, well, we're gonna actually pay for you to move in with your cousin. And maybe we, it would have made for good in, in reality TV, cousins that hate each other having to live together. I would have watched it, let me tell you. But instead, we saw two things happen in Italy. People, young people went on vacation to Greece and wealthy Italians went to Romania, Bulgaria and other such Eastern Bloc countries to uh, bring back uh, what you call nurses aid for their elderly parents because they could underpay them. You know, let's not even go into the labor exploitation there. But this is what drove the rise in Italy's quote unquote second wave which brings me to this question for you is this a second wave or is this just a, another repercussion of lack of bad public health management i mean lockdowns you know from a theoretical perspective what they do is they push the infections into the future right they don't actually get rid of the disease they just they, they you know so what what's what's happened is and a part of it is also it's it's a uh it's this is it's very clearly a regional epidemic right so um Places that were hit very hard in the United States in the in the uh, early spring or in the in the summer are hit less hard now. It's the Midwest now that's being hit hard, whereas earlier in the Northeast it was Northeast in the early spring and then the South in the in the um, in the summer. It seems like every part of the of the world is going to get hit by this. 
um, you know, uh, New Zealand aside, but, but they, they, they've locked their island off. Essentially, it's a prison nation now. Like, you can't go in or out. So, and, and even in Italy, I noticed that uh, Lombardy, which was hit very hard, obviously, in the, in the spring, especially Bergamo, Bergamo is relatively spared this time. Um, so it, it's interesting. Like it's 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 very clearly now the 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 theory of it is that when you get to herd immunity, you you end up with not that you have zero infections. It's not that you've eradicated the disease. It's it's the infections are still there, but n- never at a level where you see this like catastrophic rise in cases um, that we saw. It seems like different regions. Each region has to has to cope with the infection spreading within it. And regions that do better protect their vulnerable, and regions that do worse don't protect their vulnerable. That's really the key thing for me in this in thinking about whether a uh, an area, a, a country, or what a region has done well or poorly. Um, how many elderly people have died? How many how many vulnerable people have died? That is the key question, because that if uh, that, that that is the failure. Right? We, we, we have available to us policies we could adopt if we were just created enough and, and, uh, and, and sort, of, uh, 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 sort of follow the science enough in some sense to, to do so. But we, and, and pl- some places have done that, actually. Uh, you mentioned Sweden. We can talk about you know, Sweden. We can talk about uh, 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 in the United States. I think Florida has opened up to some extent. Um, there are places that have worked hard to protect the vulnerable. And that with failures, by the way, I don't think it's, perf- it's perfectly possible. Uh, to do this. I mean, I, I think nowhere has, uh, I would say, is a, is a perfect example. Uh, but, uh, but it's a question of trade-offs, right? So if you think about the lockdown harms, and we talked about how devastating they are, you have to weigh that against uh, a more creative policy against the, that, that, that could replace the lockdowns. I think if, if, we, if we put our minds to it, we actually could do better on both. Reduce the suicidality, the starvation, all the other lockdown harms. Um, you know, people saw, people not getting cancer care, uh, your cancer screening, you, uh, and that, that kind of thing, versus uh, the protecting the elderly. I mean, we, we work to protect, focus protection of the elderly and other vulnerable, combined with lifting the lockdowns generally, will produce better outcomes for both the young and the old. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. And this also comes back to, again, economics in terms of national policies. How do you protect the 60-year-old store clerk worker when he or she is being paid on a, you know, three month contract that the employer can just say, well, you're fired. And, you know, these, these are serious issues of like when you said that, you know, we're doing lockdown has been done badly and there's been these workers sacrificed to keep the wealthier at home. You know, this is, let's be clear, who's ordering delivery and who's doing the deliverooing. And um, I call this a kind of pomo f- postmodern feudalism because, uh, well, it is feudalism. We're seeing us to come in to the town, work the food, do, give me my food. And uh, I also call what the Deliveroo and Uber drivers are doing because we know I've been covering them for years and their, their debate with the you know, city of London and the government of uh, England to have a certain kind of recognition as a worker 
so that they can have certain benefits, right? And they've been struggling for years with these kind of uh, legal loophole contracts where they're treated as if they're um, independent contractors. So these are largely immigrants who are just making it financially. So now we're doing lockdown through them. And I call this lockdown by proxy, right? Where we can all feel good about ourselves. And I can be like, Jay, how are you doing? And we can Zoom meeting and talk about our inner child. Meanwhile, there's a whole, and we're better off in the West, you know, go to most countries in the world and the, the amount of fatality has yet to hit, you know, because of the trickle down economic a disaster that I think will be coming in the coming months for many people. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think um, I, I, I don't. I think the policy is immoral. The, the one we're currently following, um, and for reasons you say, it's, it's basically devastated the poor. Um, and I and I don't uh, I don't understand the the support for it. And 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 which and the other thing you said, I completely agree with, is that there's this moral inversion. Like we pat ourselves on the back for you know, wearing a mask and, and staying home. And, you know, that itself has knock-on consequences that are devastating for the poor around the world, right? The, the economic collapse, it's, it's partly, you know, the lockdowns themselves, even if the government hadn't adopted them, people would have, because of the fear, would have stayed at home. That's true. Um, but, uh, the, the, but let's be clear about what it is. Like, it's, 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 a, it's a bid to protect ourselves. We're not actually in it to protect others. Right? There's not, it's not simply just, it's not just a, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for me, right? I'm staying, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, sort of quarantining myself. I can, I do Uber orders in order to, to, I mean, in order to not be infected, right? That is, that's in some sense, and it's extremely, it's a selfish policy because uh, the economic collapse the United States to take, I mean, it's, it's, in, it, it's, a, it's the richest country on earth. Uh, it is in it, uh, it when it, decides that it's going to end uh, to, to lock down, it has enormous consequences for the economies of poor countries. And if you're a poor person living on $2 a day in Senegal, and you, uh, your, your country, the, the food prices go up because the, 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 the agricultural trade has collapsed uh, or, or, or shut down, because of the lockdowns, or and there's a the the, uh, the there's a ten percent GDP hit in your country. Well, ten percent it won't be it won't be equally distributed. I'm no longer going to making two dollars a day. I'll make I'll make a dollar fifty, and now I'm at risk of starvation. Those are the those are the knock on consequences of the decision to lock down the world. Uh, and each country has decided that it's 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 going to lift up its own, its own drawbridges from the moats and live 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 alone. But we can't do that. The country, the world is too interconnected for that. Decisions made in the United States and Italy and Canada have consequences in the UK have consequences for every poor country on earth. Every rich country as well, of course, and poor people living in poor countries, in rich countries. Um, and those, those belong in our calculus, I think, when we're thinking about what, the, what, the, uh, what we ought to do for policy for COVID. Those are not trivial. 130 million people, you know, one and a half million people have died of COVID thus far, I think worldwide, something on that order versus 130 million people that are at risk of starvation, those, those lives count too. And we should think about those lives when we're making policy. I know, I've, I've reminded people of this on, in social media, and I do get quite a bit of pushback saying, well, you're suggesting it, it comes back to killing grandma. 
And I have to remind people constantly that they are conflating the term economics for capitalism. And, you know, aside from being <clears throat> a scientist, you also are, uh, you, I believe you're a research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research and a senior fellow at Stanford's Institute for Economic Policy Research. So you know what you're talking about. Like my economic education comes in the days when I used to travel by plane, I'd always would buy an economist at the airport because I'm not great at this stuff, but I would train myself in, in certain things that I wanted to understand when I would read negotiations of NAFTA or even greater <clears throat> expansive policies going on with the World Bank or the IMF that I understood nothing of. But I think a lot of people have this, you know, uh, virtual signaling about I'm staying at home, I'm working from home, I'm wearing my mask, I, I have 500 types of gel in my purse. And then on the other side, there's a complete disconnect to what you have just said. I mean, this reminds me of back in the day when the US embassy, I believe in Kenya was bombed. Uh, this was back in the 90s. And a friend's mother said something that I just loved. She said, Oh my God, do you know how many hundreds of families will be affected by this? And it struck me. She was talking about the workers who worked at the U.S. Embassy, who opened doors, who polished the windows. All those workers, each one of them was making enough money to support at least 40, 50 extended family members. And Americans and French and British have no clue about this unless they have spent years living abroad as to how extensive our economic wealth is to others, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, we are connected in this way. And, it, and, it, and we think about it as just, just money, but it's, that's not right. There, there are sort of moral obligations associated with that, I think, that we should, that we should take seriously in our policy. I, I mean, the, the, the uh, I, I, I think, can I, can, I, can I circle back a little bit to the, the, sure. the discussion about, about public health? You know, one of the things about public health is that um, we're not supposed to create this sense of shame or, or, uh, or this, this kind of division, like you're a good person because you're wearing a mask and carrying gel, and I'm a bad person because I don't have gel or whatever, right? That, that <laughs> kind of, I, I, that's just, that, it's just it's, it, that's a failure of public health, right? Uh, and we've also created this very strange thing where like, if you get COVID, you failed. Right. You didn't protect yourself well enough. It's a, it's. I, I mean, uh, creating shame when. Uh, I mean, I think back to the HIV days where, you know how. I mean, we that was a, that was another failure of public health. Like there was, it, it did not do a good job of, of destigmatizing HIV. Um, we've stigmatized. We actively stigmatized COVID. You're, you you you. If you get COVID, it's because you didn't take these actions that we, the, that we said you should take. Exactly, because I remember in the days of HIV, I used to get the CDC mailing every week. I started getting it around 83, 84, and it was a pamphlet, like a four pages stapled together. It had numbers, all the numbers from state to state. And this is when, you know, HIV was quite small then. And eventually, you know, it got very thick. But I remember when the U.S. was dealing with the AIDS <clears throat> issue. And Reagan had not mentioned this at all until his last year of, of his second term. I, at that point, 
went to Europe, had my first job post-university, and I remember seeing a Stop AIDS bulletin where the O in the word stop was made from a photograph of a condom, which you would never have seen in the U.S. in 1987 or 86. And uh, I remember thinking, wow, they're much more advanced about addressing this because the stigma was only removed by pointing to the, the way the virus is transmitted via sexual contact. And we've gone back to that. We've gone back to that in terms of also media information because when you were talking about the issues of how the difference between how the infection fatality rate has been calculated or badly calculated and badly represented in the media, so too has this notion that we can never have herd immunity um, because people are used to <clears throat> only talking about antibiotics when in fact the other part of that discussion that also enveloped AIDS, talking about T cells and how they come into play or might come into play in eventually having some kind of herd immunity. Can you speak yeah, to that? Really Absolutely. So, so um, when people are infected with this with COVID uh, with SARS-CoV-2 virus, what 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 happens is um, the, it, the 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 most typical thing is it's it, you you get some mild infection, and then your body mounts a defense against it. Antibodies are part of that defense, but also there are other, other uh, immune cells like T cells, which attack uh, the, the cells that are infected by the virus. Um, you, 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 you may have these symptoms as a result of that defense. And actually the severe form of that is the viral pneumonia, but the typical thing is a mild cold. And then you clear it. Your body remembers that it was infected. For months afterwards, you have antibodies so that if, if you're infected again or exposed again, the antibodies directly just latch onto the virus and, and, and neutralize it. Uh, now that fades over time. But in addition to that, the antibodies, your body mounts, has these, has these other immune cells that, that remember that you were infected. And they, they float around essentially for years, right? For, for the other human coronaviruses for you know, somewhere between two, two to five years, of, one to five years of protection. Um, and even after you're infected later, later as, you, as, you, as you get infected, when the, the second time you get infected, the typical thing is that your body, because it remembers, it's gonna, you're going to have a less severe presentation than you had the first time. Now, that's, there are exceptions to this, so I don't want to you know, make, make promises, but, they're, 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 but they are exceptions, right? The, the key thing is you are effectively protected from a reinfection if you have been infected before. Uh, that, so this is not like HIV. HIV, the disease attacks your, ability, your body's ability to remember and to, to clear the virus. I mean, it's in, in that way, it's much, much less deadly than HIV, right? right. Uh, right. HIV, until the advent of these new drugs in the mid-90s, it was, it was a, a, effectively a death sentence. Right. Uh, whereas that's not that's not true for this virus, and less less much less true for HIV than it was. Thanks, thank God for these new drugs. And that's um, the paradox, isn't it? Though I mean, if you think about HIV until Crixivan around it was 1996, um, there was always going to be that stigma about not only the notion of how you achieved you know an HIV status, but also the fact that you would die from it. 
And here we are with a disease that's much less likely to die. And it's been so, it's been actually, in my opinion, more stigmatized by bad administration of public health and politics and media. The media has piled on this. It's so unnecessary, right? I mean, it's, and, and it's created enormous harm, I think. Um, I mean, HIV is, a, is, a, is an example of a disease where there really isn't herd immunity, right? So one uh, new person getting it, if they have, if they have sex with multiple people that are, are vulnerable in unprotected ways, they can spread it to multiple people. Um, uh, for this disease, herd immunity, all again, I, I, it's, 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 a, it's a disease that's basically made for herd immunity uh, in, 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 that, in that sense. Just like the other four circulating human coronaviruses are controlled by herd immunity, Zika is controlled by herd immunity. Um, you know, now, the, uh, the path to get there is a different question, right? The lockdowns, we will end up at herd immunity. It's just more people will die in the interim, more, more poor people will die in the interim. Uh, more rich people will die in the interim. People, more people will die of COVID, and more people will die of depression and starvation in the interim. If we adopt a different policy, a more creative policy of focused protection, we, we will get to herd immunity faster, and fewer people will die of COVID, and fewer people will die of, non, of non-COVID diseases. Well, you know, I spoke to one of your co-signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration, Martin Kuldorf, who told me that had lockdowns not occurred, this virus would likely not be the, the strength that it's at right now, and it might have very well already passed through. Yeah, I think we'd be, we would, without lockdowns, we would have been done with this epidemic uh, by now, almost certainly. The lockdowns themselves have, lo- have extended the time we have to cope with this disease. And the lockdowns, as, as, as we said, they're not effective in protecting vulnerable people. We, in fact, what they've done is they've, they've, uh, they've in, a, in a way, because uh, our, our, le- our leaders have focused on these lockdowns, they have forgotten uh, or they've not put in the effort to think creatively about other ways to protect the vulnerable. Well, in, in extending this lockdown in through various phases, have we in fact created more deaths instead of fewer? I mean, the idea of lockdown was to create fewer. Yeah, I think we have. I think we've, we've because look, you can't, it's not human to stay, hold away forever. It's just not possible. Uh, and and the, the lockdown fatigue comes in and, um, you know, eventually you, you, you're going to get exposed. And so what, what ends up happening is uh, vulnerable people get exposed because they're at risk for a longer period of time to COVID. And we have the lockdown harms, which, which cause people to die from non-COVID sources, as we've talked about, suicide. Or- yeah, no, your, your, um, your creation of the Great Barrington Declaration along with Sunetra Gupta of Oxford and Martin Kuldorf of Harvard. You guys state this. You say that the, lo- um, the repercussion of these lockdowns will be lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings, and deteriorating mental health. Of course, this in addition to what doctors have been saying already for months about vaccinations for children being skipped, which could lead to other diseases and other outbreaks, right? You know, we, we, we were on the verge of eliminating polio from the face of the earth and it's made a resurgence. Right? Uh, women uh, are going to have late stage breast cancer diagnoses around, uh, in, in rich countries around the world because they didn't go get mammograms this year. 
men and women are going to have late stage colon cancers diagnosed next year that would have caught earlier if, if they had gotten their colonoscopies this year, right? These are, these are basic tools of public health to prevent you know, a devastating cancers that we have decided are, are, are much less important than COVID. It's, it is an absolute abdication of, of, of responsibility in public health, uh, public health decision-making. Well, can I ask you, who's been carrying the ball on this? You know, I'm watching this theater of Cuomo living in his basement, which we know now was a theater totally. So I use that word purposefully um, because he was seen out. Not, you know, he would go on, this, on air the next day and say, last night I was in sweats. You know, I had sweats and I was very sick. But he was always fine in front of the camera, which is fair enough. He's a young guy. He's not supposed to, you know, be on a ventilator, statistically speaking. At the same time, we're given him and we're given Fauci. Everything's those two. Then you get the Antichrist. Again, I'm going by CNN, which is Donald Trump killing us all, right? That's it. He's going to kill us all. And then you get Boris Johnson, who paradoxically, I think, would have probably made different decisions were he not himself a patient of this disease. And we're we're in the throes of this kind of very bizarre culture media war and a philosophical war because, you know, uh, some days I just want all the media stations to be forced to putting on some kind of uh, raga music, right? And everyone <laughs> just has to meditate. Today, it's like no news. We're not going to talk about NAFTA we're not, or we're not going to talk about Brexit. We're not going to talk about any of it, but you have to meditate for, for four hours or something. That would have been a better outcome because people have been, you know, I'm sure you have a good chuckle on social media. And all these people are suddenly overnight immunologists and epidemiologists, right? <laughs> Everyone has an opinion. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I, I look, I, I have some, I mean, I have sympathy, right? It's, it's the, for this because people do want to understand. Um, the problem has been the communication, like, like the, 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 the media has an interest or seems to have an interest in stoking fear. And that I, I think has, is, has undermined our ability to reason publicly about this. And it's undermined, uh, it's undermined science. Uh, it's, it's, and, and it's undermined policy, right? We, we, uh, uh, you, you, when you when you have a population that is so scared, now if the if the numbers that are coming out of the science supported that, that's that would be one thing, right? If if it really was a disease that has a three point four percent mortality rate or infection infection fatality rate, that would be one thing. Um, with 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 equal risk for young and old, that's a very different disease. The in the in the public mind, because of the media and the fear mongering, I think people think that it's even higher risk than that. Uh, we, I, I think a responsible media would do everything it could to provide accurate risks numbers you know, for, for, the, for the population so that it, it would make good decisions. Uh, I, I don't, maybe, maybe the media environment isn't such that, that it could support that, but instead what it's done is it sensationalized every piece of bad news while, uh, while downplaying good news. The, just think about the vaccine, right? The vaccine is, is potentially incredibly good news. It's, it's hard to hide that. But yet we've seen through much of the epidemic, the media uh, work to undermine confidence in the, in the scientists that are working on the vaccine, the, the, the regulators that are gonna evaluate the safety of it. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it and and they, it politicized the vaccine in a way that's just unconscionable. 
Like this is this is a public, an enormously potentially important public health tool to uh, to end the epidemic. Instead, it's now become this politicized thing where half the population is going to be uh, doubt whether what you know what I mean. They're going to doubt its efficacy. They're going to I mean, we we basically undermined our ability with the media and science has undermined its, its uh, the, the the credibility that it has so that the public won't believe what we're saying. Well, I'm sure you've seen many people already believe that this is a Bill Gates conspiracy, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, those those are those are those those conspiracies thrive in an environment where falsehoods are repeated over and over as if it were truth. Well, also the fact that we're not being given information. I mean, I you know would like to know who is going to get this vaccine. I was able to find out locally it's going to be people at high risk, uh, doctors, elderly, and police officers. Effectively, that's the that's the right thing. With that, we could end the the epidemic. Right, so we take the vaccine instead of giving it to the to, to relatively well-off people living at home with Zoom. Um, we should we should give it to <laughs> high-risk people. Um, exactly. Once we give it to, and once all the high-risk people enough high-risk people have it, then herd immunity will protect. They they won't get infected because they have the vaccine, and the rest of the population for whom ninety-nine point nine five percent will uh, a survival rate from this disease. Right, uh, the, uh, or whom the lockdown harms are much, much, much worse. We should just open up. I mean, that's the right way to use this vaccine. If the vaccine is a godsend, if we use it right, if we if we use it to protect the vulnerable, then we can end the epidemic immediately. Do you think there will be lessons learned from this? For instance, you know, you had a lot of pushback. Uh, so has Ioannidis. So have pretty much everyone I've spoken to. Now the media is starting to warm up. Now, if you could first speak to the kind of pushback you've received and why you think the media is warming up. Because from where I'm sitting, I would like to see next pandemic. Well, I'd like to never see it. But if I had to be tortured into a new one, I would like to see more transparency and a vast representation of views at the table, if you catch my yeah, uh, so I, I, let me second that last thought. I, I think that has to happen, right? This pandemic, uh, a very narrow set of experts claimed the mantle of science and said, look, this is the only way. And everyone else who disagrees with us is anti-science. Even prominent scientists like John Unides or Martin Kuldorf or, or Sunetra Gupta. Um, so I think, I think that, that that should never happen again, right? We have to, again, science is this dialectic, open dialect of conversation, this dialectic conversation where we, where we talk with each other about our differing views and we think of ways to resolve them. Um, and then we move on from there. I mean, I think that has, to, that has to be built into the ethos of how we think about science. What, what's happened to science should, needs to be repaired. And I, I will work very hard if I can to, to, to help fix it. Um, you asked me what what the pushback I've gotten. I mean, I've been it's personally been very difficult. Like I in the in, in the Santa Clara study, my my um, the my wife was made national news because she wrote an email to her friends encouraging them to sign on to the study to, to volunteer for the study. Um, I mean, she didn't say there were some things that she didn't say quite right, but like you know, she's a civilian. Leave her out of the national news um, for this. Uh, uh, Sort of, in, sort of false allegations about conflict of interests have been, fi have been filed uh, against me. Uh, we very, very like just sort of odd, odd, odd 
imputations about my my politics driving my thinking. Although as you can probably hear, I, I don't really have a very strong politics. I don't. I don't. I mean, I, I have one. It's like everyone does, but I just don't. It doesn't drive my thinking. Um, I, I, it, it's, it's, and within the university itself, there's uh, within Stanford itself, uh, you know, where I've been for the last 35 years, I can't talk to my friends about this. It's, a, it's a, the, 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 the environment is such that uh, people that I talk with think I'm dangerous for, for having a different view. Um, it's a very strange situation where uh, science, you can't have open conversations about disagreements in science. I've never seen, seen the like, and I hope, I, I hope to never see it again. Um, well, we, it, we've read about them, certainly, from the 16th century and 17th century Galileo, right? I mean, this is the phenomenal part. Here we are with this little machine that we can just enter into our search engine, all kinds of questions. And suddenly, science, peer review, being able to speak freely has been now left in the hands of big tech companies who are booting off. People. I mean, Ioannidis' video was kicked off of YouTube. That's that's so just so terrible, right? I mean, I think I think it's ironic. I think we've become so used to thinking to ourselves, "Oh, how can I learn a, a true fact about the world? I just enter in a search engine, or, and 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 the, and someone will tell me what the truth is." Um, the truth is hard to find, and I don't know it, and you don't know it, and no no one knows that in full. It's not possible. Um, science is an engine for uncovering that truth if, if you allow it to work. Uh, to, you know, it, it, it doesn't always work perfectly and sometimes it, it, it's wrong and, you know, but that's just, it's messy. It's supposed to be messy. There's no other way as humans to, to get at the truth. There's no, no simple thing where you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just type it into Google and it'll tell me what's right or wrong. I mean, Google, the algorithms are run by humans who are fallible. The people who do the fact checking are fallible. I mean, I've been fact checked where I, I look at it and go, they, the fact checkers don't know anything about what I, what I did. They don't even know the underlying facts. Um, uh, it's really difficult to get at what's true. And the only tool we really have in science is this dialectic where, where we converse with each other openly about our views. And I may disagree and we'll, we'll just, I mean, there's no other, there's no other alternative. And eventually we learn things and that's great. And we should celebrate that, but let's not under, undermine this process that leads to the learning of things, which is I think what we've done. Well, absolutely. It seems that when I saw that Eunice's video was taken off, but then I learned that his paper that he published on the infection fatality rate from you know seroprevalence data was not only published allowed to stay online, but the WHO Yes, the John's paper on on the on the infection fatality rate and seroprevalence inferred from seroprevalence data was published in the Bulletin of the World Health Organization. I mean, that, I, so there's a turn, right? Yeah, there's well, that's because it's good science. Uh, I mean, it's it's, and that's how science should work. We didn't know what the the infection fatality rate was. There was a big disagreement among scientists and other folks. We now fifty. Uh, now actually a hundred some studies a John, John report on 50 some at least in the paper um, have been run. And now we have a much better idea about it. The range of reasonable disagreement has been narrowed because of that work. Right. Uh, isn't that's... it bizarre that we can, I can go on uh, Twitter and Jack Dorsey will probably not have me banned for life because 
I say that Pluto is really a planet and I do not agree that it has been demoted, right? I mean, <laughs> there is more room to discuss that. The people, I'm sure, I don't know if you've seen it, it's a great documentary on flat earthers, but flat earthery has made a comeback with a ferocity that's frightening. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, the, there's a the video on Netflix. And, uh, you know, I was watching the video and these people are like describing how the world is flat and there's a big glass cover over it as if it were like an object in a <laughs> Tiffany's compartment. I was just shocked. But we are living in this very strange world today where we it's almost like more is less. You know, we have all this access to information. We have loads more information because it's not for nothing, as they would say, that we've got AI doing a lot of work that used to take humans decades to do. Now AI can do it in a, in a blink of an eye. And we have all this information. And, and instead of saying, great, we've got all this information, we're like, well, I think after the Sea of China, that's where the Earth drops off into the abyss, <laughs> you know? That's where we are. I, mean, <laughs> I think that's no longer under reasonable, reasonable disagreement. <laughs> There's enough evidence. You know, it's funny, the funny you mentioned that, it, it occurs to me as, as you talk about that, that um, it's like things that don't, don't really, aren't really that important to us, that aren't central to us as human beings. Uh, it's fine to have these, th these 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 weird scientific quasi scientific fights over right or like disagreements, but when it's when it becomes really important, where we really need science the most to like help resolve these disagreements, that's where you have the, that's where the censorship comes, that's where the silencing comes, that's where the intimidation comes. It's it's completely backwards. I mean, if you're going to choose a place to, to silence, it'd be, it'd be, the, I mean, I, I mean, I guess it, my, my, my druthers is don't silence anybody. Let, let the, let the folks who believe in the flat earth say what they want. I mean, they're not going to convince very many people, I hope. Um, but the, but the, uh, but here where we just don't know a number that, and, and that, that, I mean, to me that in the early days of the epidemic, I just wanted, I, I mean, I told my wife this, like I, 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 that number, that infection fatality rate number, I've never wanted to know any number other than my child's APGAR scores more. I mean, that number to me was, is, it is the, still the central number in this epidemic, 99.95% survival for people under, 75, under 70 and 95% above 70. That number took a lot to get to. And it's, 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 it is a hugely important advance in our understanding of the, of the virus and the epidemic. Um, and uh, it's, it's precious. And we should use that, those numbers to design policy, a, a, a more humane policy than we've been following. Well, certainly. I mean, from what I've been reading over the past uh, 10 years, even a bit more, there's going to be another pandemic, right? I mean, statistically speaking. Uh, and let's hope that these future pandemics are handled in a very different way. Because the who's going to be doing the math for not just the suicides? How will, you know, who's going to actually follow up on how many cancer deaths more? For not just this year, this is going to have a knock-on effect for at least a decade, if not two. No, there has to be reckoning. I think I think that's what you're saying, and, and there has to be a, a sober evaluation of what uh, of the failures of this policy, uh, so that I mean, I, John Unides, when in the early, very early days in the epidemic, he wrote a, a piece for Stat News, which is a, a you know statisticians talk to each other, where he said, "Look, we just here are the things we don't know." If we and once we know these, we'll be in a better position to say what what we should do. But until we know these things, let's not jump to a single policy. 
that piece was utterly mo was mocked and ignored. But he was right. We didn't know those things, and we did jump to a policy. And the cost of that policy are becoming are going to become evident, as you say, in the next dec in, the, in the next in the coming years. They're already evident, um, and uh, it's because we jumped before we knew the facts. That's the thing is we, in a way, we have to have everyone go back to their high school textbooks about science and remember, you know, the lessons, the historical lessons of how science got to where it is now. And in the sense, we have to accept that science is always going to be a process, especially with future pandemics. We can't expect to know day one what's going to happen from this new, you know, virus at the same time we have to have better mitigation efforts that involved early on localizing who's at risk who needs to be kept in out of harm's way and and move forward from this hopefully with more research around immune response and uh, other other facets that aren't going to necessarily negate like when you know the, the titles in the newspapers a month and a half ago were like there is no herd immunity we can see the you know immunity only lasts a few months well people weren't given the whole story so there's this will in a sense to get everyone frantic and that sells papers sell when people are freaked out but it also undermines credibility i would think at least i would hope i mean i think that the the, the organs that have pushed this panic uh, I hope in the, when people will look back and say, look, why did they, th it was a very irresponsible thing to do. Right? And the, whereas, the, whereas the folk, the places that have, that have put out uh, accurate information combined with a, a, a sense of humility about what we know and what don't know, people will, will trust those, those places more. Mm -hmm.